You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. When I was thinking about a text that we could go into um, on Easter morning, um, I thought Romans 8 would be the place we would go. Um, There's twice in this chapter that the author speaks of the resurrection of Christ or the resurrected Christ. And so I think in that regard, there's much to be gleaned from Romans chapter 8. I was thinking of my friend Joe Nelson, one of our pastors here. If you know him well enough, you know that one of his favorite places to preach from or to spend time in is the book of? No, Philippians. So some of you don't know Joe Nelson very well. <laughs> but if, 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 if you notice, I know preachers notice these things, uh, about once a year, um, Joe will go back to his favorite text in Philippians and preach that text one more time. Um, and about every year, I can almost tell when it's coming. I bet Nelson's going to preach from Philippians. And I think it's 1-6, if I'm not incorrect. One of the things that I love about going back to our favorite places of Scripture um, is that you probably know this as well as I do, that when you go back to that favorite space, there's something more that God shows you and adds in there. Um, So like Joe Nelson, my favorite place is not so much Philippians, it's Romans 8. Romans 8 is the place that I think I live almost on a daily basis. If you have met with me in a garage or a backyard or over a dinner somewhere, you've probably heard me quote Romans a number of times. For those of you who are uncomfortable with the fact that I have tattoos, you'll find that on my body I have Romans passages tattooed in various places because I want to be reminded of the great and glorious truths that Romans brings to us, primarily that because our Savior has been resurrected, I am who he says I am, no longer condemned, a child of the living God. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I'm stoked to dive into Romans 8 with you. I wrestled this week with whether to read the entire chapter or not for the sake of time, and I've already taken enough of our time this morning. I'm only going to read select portions that I think are going to help us and aid us the most this morning. They'll be on the screen in front of you. I'm not going to make you stand up with me because there's a significant amount of text, but if you'd like to follow along on the screen, I'm going to read through these portions. I'm going to begin in verses 1 through 3 and keep moving my way through. So here's the word of God to us this morning, beginning in verse 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verses 8 through 11. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit Who dwells in you. Verses 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. Verses 28 through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed All the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God on Easter of 2022. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your word, and especially uh, for Romans chapter 8. I pray, God, that you would help us to live in this text over the next few moments, and that you would speak words that would bring a sense of refreshment and satisfaction to the life we've been given. And that you would also, Father, give us a sense of security and assurance to the life we are living. I pray, God, that you would do that as you paint for us a picture of what your son did on Good Friday a couple days ago. On a cross, on a hill called Golgotha, the place of death. And then what happened this morning as he rose up out of that grave and left that tomb empty, signifying the power that he has and the victory that he won over Satan, sin, and the grave on our behalf. Pray, God, that you would do that and more in us this morning and trust you to do that work. God, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So Easter Sunday... Uh, is all about celebrating the resurrected Christ, right? This is what we do on Easter. We celebrate the resurrected Jesus simply because the empty tomb, that grave that he got up out of and left empty, what does it do? It finalized the victory of the bloody cross a couple days prior. Uh, The bloody cross itself on Friday, that work that Jesus did there, both covers and removes the filthy stains of our sin. It both covers it and it removes it. Causes us who were once filthy to stand in front of our Father completely perfect in the white robes that God has given us in Christ. That's what the bloody cross did. It removed and covered the presence and the power and the penalty of our sins against God. And then the empty tomb a couple days later this morning on Sunday morning. What happened in that moment 
is that the work that Jesus did at that cross was proven to be complete and true and viable. That empty tomb that we celebrate today, the resurrected Jesus, that's the proof that our Savior's work at that cross on Good Friday was perfectly complete. Jesus could have hung on that cross on Friday and said, it is finished, and then never rose from the grave at all, and then his words wouldn't have been true. The empty tomb is what validates those words when Jesus said, it is finished. 1 Corinthians uh, makes it very clear that if the empty tomb is not true, uh, then we believers are to be pitied as the biggest fools on the face of the planet. Any talk that we might have of eternal life or any talk that we might have of eternal security, the idea that there is uh, eternity to live for, and that that's a secure promise, any talk of that for a believer would be foolish if the empty tomb is not true. But since the resurrection of Jesus cannot be disputed because the body was never found again, he was seen alive by well over 500 people, if not more, written and documented. Since that resurrection of Jesus, since that empty tomb was left empty, cannot be disputed, then we as believers, what we get to experience is what it means to be fully alive and completely secure. That's what we get to experience. A full and satisfying, purpose-filled life that is full of security. Think about what it means to be fully alive and totally secure for all of eternity. Think about that. Fully alive, totally secure for all of eternity. I was telling others recently, or this last week, that it's easy for us to grasp the concept of a life lived for 70 years, 50 years, 80 years, because we see it right in front of us every day, our friends, our family. We see what this life is like from birth till death, but we've never seen eternity. It's hard to wrestle with the idea that this little speck of life is somehow going to affect or season all of eternity. What's that going to be like? Like a little grain of salt on a big, fat, juicy steak, right? Somehow it's going to season that experience. It's what we look forward to. And yet this life here and now, this little piece of salt, so to speak, we're meant to live in a way that we are fully alive and completely secure. What does that mean? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it mean to be totally secure? And what hinders me from experiencing that? What hinders me? What hinders you from experiencing what it means to be fully alive and totally secure. I'm sure it might be easy for some of you to pick up things in your mind right now. This is the thing that is stopping me from experiencing a full and satisfying life. This is the thing that is causing me to walk without security, to feel insecure. Right? You may look upon the things that are going on in the world around us right now. There's more than enough. Reasons to feel insecure by simply opening your social media feed or the news feed, right? Five minutes of that, and uh, there's a lot of fear there, isn't there? The world we live in kind of uh, trumpets this idea of a full and satisfying life. This idea of being totally secure, as though they revolve around things like uh, financial stability, right? Or political power, influence, or maybe relational connectedness. If I could just have a better group of friends, or if I could just get married, or if that conflict with my family member would just go away. These are the things that we are duped into believing oftentimes will give us a full and satisfying life that is full of security. 
Think about things like job status or physical health and beauty, self-improvement or self-advancement, crawling up that ladder at work. Or maybe the pursuit of personal happiness or pleasure. These are the things that we are duped into believing oftentimes may give us a full and satisfying and secure life. We're told that if we attain these things, we will experience that. But the problem, I think we all know this intrinsically deep down inside, is that we know that it's a, it's a worthless cycle. Right? As soon as we feel like we've gotten ahead in one area, we've fallen behind in another the other part of the problem is that deep down inside, we know that there's not one of us who's perfect enough to attain those things in the perfect way that we need them to satisfy our souls, right? I haven't mentioned motorcycles in many weeks, so I'll mention it this morning. I cannot get enough horsepower in that bike to get me to be fully satisfied. That's a funny little illustration. Um... Harley Davidson doesn't make a motor big enough, although their biggest one I really want it. But as soon as I got that, I would be upset because I don't have a motor big enough. Again, funny little illustration, but it goes along with everything, right? Whether that be the money in your bank account, the status at your job, the friend group you're running with, nothing will ever be good enough. You know why? Because this is not heaven. That's why. This is not heaven. Now, we can try to get a bit of a slice of heaven on earth, which for me would feel like a cabin in the woods in the middle of the mountains with a couple of Harley Davidson sitting out front and a great collection of guns to shoot out back and a personal tattoo artist on text. <laughs> Hope y'all are okay with me just being really personal. That would feel like a slice of heaven, but you know what? The house would burn down, the motor would blow up, and the tattoo artist would get something wrong. done with the funny illustrations here's the reality there's only one perfect person his name is jesus and he's the only perfect person who ever had all of the things that you could possibly ever want and then some and yet what did he do he gave up all of that and he came here to this broken place that you and i really do not want to be at anymore oftentimes if we're um, honest right he came here so that he could die on Good Friday and then leave the tomb empty on Sunday. And so uh, the idea of a full and satisfying and completely secure life, it cannot be based on my own personal advancement or my own personal pursuit of any kind of pleasure or any kind of power here on this earth, right? The cross and the empty tomb, the message of the cross and the empty tomb. It transforms, it upends, it flips upside down this idea of a truly full, satisfying, truly secure life. So what does it mean to be fully alive? According to the text we're reading, how would God's word speak to this for us this morning? What does it mean to be fully alive? Romans 8, uh, verses 8 through 11 speak to this question. Verses 8 through 11 teaches us that in our sinful flesh, you and I can never please God. And because that's true, we can never experience a full and satisfying life. You can't because you're in your flesh. You're full of sin. It's, you're broken, just like I am. I'm broken. And because we're broken, broken people cannot create unbroken things. Therefore, every piece of satisfaction, every piece of security, every piece of goodness that we think we create or get, this side of heaven will inevitably be broken or get broken. Because we're broken. We can get close, but you'll never get perfection this side of heaven. Our sinful flesh, we can never please God, so we can never experience a full, an absolutely, truly full and satisfying life. We'll always settle for cheap substitutes. I don't know about you, but powdered milk just isn't as good as what comes out of the cow. Okay. And I can dupe myself into thinking so. I'll tell you something else that I think is really nasty, too. This is just me. I love food, but I really hate imitation mashed potatoes. 
I just can't do it. I don't care how much pepper and salt and butter you put on it. It's horrible. <laughs> the same thing happens for us spiritually all the time. Settle for cheap substitutes. In our sinful flesh, we can never please God. We can therefore never experience a absolutely, truly full and satisfying life. But, but in verses 8 through 11, the author says this. If the spirit of the living God has made his place of residence in you, then you will not live in slavery to your sinful flesh because you then belong to God as though you are his home. Like you are the mansion that he comes to take up residence in. Do you believe that this morning is the question? That's a massive truth far beyond our understanding, I think, at times. That the living God would come and take up residence inside of you and I. Even though we still struggle with sin on a daily basis, the spirit of the resurrected Christ His promise is that he will renew our lives continually as we surrender to him in repentance. All in all, trying to answer that question, what does it mean to be fully alive? Here's what I think it means from verses 8 through 11. It means that the spirit of the resurrected Jesus is the one who gives us a full and satisfying life. There's no full and satisfying life outside of the resurrected Christ living inside of you. If you don't know him, you have no hope. But hope is offered to you if you would come to know him. Second question we're wrestling with is what does it mean to be totally secure? I have a bit of a picture of what it means to be totally alive. What does it mean to be totally secure? Like the world that we live in gives us more than enough reasons to be insecure. And in that insecurity, we oftentimes look for the cheap substitutes so that we can find security. If I could just plant a church that was this big, I would feel secure. If I could just preach a message that was that good, I would feel this secure. If I could just have this many kids, or if my kids would behave this way, or if my car was this kind of car, you know, the list goes on and on and on. If my spouse was like this, and so on and so forth, then I would feel security. But we know that it's a cheap substitute. It's a lie. Those things are momentary at best. So the world gives us enough reasons to be insecure, but God says that if we belong to him, if the spirit of the resurrected Christ lives inside of us, if he's made us his home, his mansion, then what? What does the text tell us? Nothing can stand against us. Nothing can stand against us simply because God, the perfect God of the universe, the creator, he's for us. This ought to blow your mind, right? Even as believers, if you've walked with Jesus for longer than 15 minutes, you think about the implications of this. You're still imperfect even though you've trusted in Jesus. You're still imperfect. And the old picture of perfection and imperfection is that imperfection will never overtake perfection. You put something perfect and imperfect in the same box. That which is perfect will always consume that which is imperfect. This is a picture of the flames overtaking the wood that you put in the fire. The flame itself is far more perfect than the wood itself, far more superior. You put you and I and God in a box and God would consume us in his perfection if we had not trusted in Jesus. That's the beauty of the message is that God is for us. Therefore, there's nothing that can stand against us. What God did is he satisfied his own wrath, his own need for perfection, so to speak, by giving his perfect son for you and I, so that when his broken body and shed blood, as we trust in him, covers us and removes that sin, we become perfect like Jesus in front of our Father. And now, our Father no longer consumes us, he is for us. See, the truth that the God of the universe is not against us, but is for us. This is meant to give us a rock-solid sense of security. A rock-solid sense of security that would last for all of eternity. See, God held nothing back, according to the text. He held absolutely nothing back. He emptied the bank account completely when he completed the work of salvation in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. 
He gave his one and only son, right? Jesus, his perfect son, to ransom, to redeem, to restore us to himself, even though he wasn't the one who broke the relationship to begin with. Isn't that crazy? God never did anything wrong to you and I. We did all the wrong, and yet he's the one who did the work of reconciling us back to him. All he asks of us is to bow our knee and submit and surrender, believe, trust, right? Call on the name of the Lord to be saved and then to walk in obedience from that point forward and repent and confess when we get it all wrong again. There's absolutely no one, the author says, no one, no one who can condemn us if you're in Christ. There's no one who can bring a charge that would stick to you as a believer. Nothing that would stick to the soul of any believer. God, he's the only one that could bring something against you and I. He's the perfect judge. And yet, he is also the one who justifies every one of us, if you trust in Jesus. And he does it based upon the perfect work of our crucified and our risen Savior, who is where? Right now, this very moment, seated on a throne in heaven, and he's pleading into the ear of his father and reminding his father, hey, I died for that one. <laughs> oh, man, they sinned again. I died for that one. He's perfect. She's perfect. Remember that, father? There's no charge that your father would bring against you if you've trusted in the work of Jesus. Because he's taken your sins and he's thrown them as high as the heavens are above the earth. And he's thrown them as far as the east is from the west. And he's taken that clothing that you and I stained with our sins and our mess and our filth and our rebellion and our transgressions. And he's placed them on his son at that cross on Friday. And when Jesus said it is finished, he took the perfect robes off of Jesus and he handed them to you and I and he said you are now justified not guilty nothing sticks to you anymore it's powerful it's powerful there's absolutely nothing in all of creation it's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible for sure it's 35 through 39. That is a tattoo on my hand. Why? To remind myself. I want to remember it. So I put it in a very visible place. There's a passage in Scripture that said that God writes the names of his beloved on the back of his hands. Some scholars believe it's an image for the way that God makes your name and my name visible on his body so that he might remember, not that God ever forgets anything. Just a picture of the extent that God would go to, to think about you and I. Sometimes we create God into this disconnected, like, theological book that has no emotion or feeling or humanness to it. We create God into an it rather than a him. I just think God is far more personable than most of us theologians who stand on stages make him sound. There's absolutely nothing in all of creation. Nothing. Nothing that can separate a believer from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Listen to me, there's no sin too dirty. There's no failure too bad. There's no spiritual force too evil. There's no authority too powerful to overcome the bond of Christ's love over you and I if you have trusted in him. He knows what you did yesterday. He knows what you thought and said this morning. And he knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And he still went to the cross. And he still left the tomb empty for all of your sins and all of my sins, past, present, and future. There's nothing that catches him off guard whatsoever. And there's nothing you can do that would change his love for you. You can't do something so well that he would love you some more. And you can't do something so bad that he'd love you some less. And you can reject his love. And not be in him and not trust in him and be doomed to an eternal place that is far from him because that's what you chose. Yet if you're in him and you've trusted in him and you live by faith in him, there's nothing that can overcome that bond of Christ's love over you. You don't need to get resaved every day. 
You just need to keep trusting in the love that God has given you. This is why we are more than conquerors, the text says. This is why we're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors through the love of Christ. Not more than conquerors because you read some great theological book. You're not more than conquerors because you prayed a sinner's prayer. You're not more than conquerors because you got filled with the Holy Spirit. You're not more than conquerors because you went to some theological school or you went to church the right amount of times. You're not more than conquerors because you kicked that one old sin in the butt and quit doing it. As soon as you get there, you got some spiritual pride going. Guess what's going to happen tomorrow? You're probably going to fall back into it again. Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah. None of that stuff makes you more than conquerors. You know what makes you a more than a conqueror? What makes you more than a conqueror is the love of Christ. It's the love of the resurrected Jesus that can never be removed from your life if you're a believer. That's what makes you more than a conqueror. So, answer that question. What does it mean to be totally secure? The answer to that is the love of the resurrected Christ. That's what it means to be totally secure. The love of the resurrected Christ. That's what holds us in security for all of eternity. Knowing those truths, then the question is, what is it that actually hinders me from living this, right? Like, I know these truths now. I know what a good, satisfying, full life looks like. I know what security in God looks like on an Easter morning, but what is it that hinders me from living fully alive, from, from being totally secure? We know that the spirit of the resurrected Christ, he's the one who gives full and satisfying life to every believer for all of eternity, right? We know that now. We've, we've heard that. We're, we're contemplating that right now in this moment. We know that there's no earthly pursuit of happiness or pleasure or power or comfort, that could ever compete with the full and satisfying life that the Spirit of God gives us as he takes up residence in our life. We, we get this now. We kind of we have the idea there, right? We understand a little bit about the fact that the, the love of the resurrected Christ, this is what holds the believers secure for all of eternity. No job stability, no bank account amount, no, no marital status, no political power can ever compete with the eternal security that can be found in the everlasting love of our crucified, risen, and returning Jesus. We, we get these ideas right now. And it's true that the resurrection of Jesus is indisputable. It's indisputable. It's rock solid. It's the foundation for a believer to live this fully alive picture. To live in total security. This is where we base it all on. But the question is, why don't I live like it? Right? Why don't I live like I have a full and satisfying life? Why don't I live like I have complete and total security? What, what hinders me from living this full, satisfying, secure life? To make it more personal and practical, why do I lose sleep? Every night for the last, well, however many weeks. I was going to say a couple of days, but I think it's been weeks. I think it's been months. It's probably been years. Every night when I go to bed, I look at my wife and I say, God, please let me sleep tonight. It's my own struggle. I know some of you probably struggle with it too. Some of you probably have other struggles that feel the same. Like, oh yeah, I've been struggling with that for a few weeks. Oh, may, actually, may, no, more like a few, oh, maybe more like a few years. You know, maybe my whole life I've struggled with this. We've all got something like that, right? When you really start thinking about the nugget of whatever it is. What do I lose? Sleep. Worry, doubt, anxiety, frustration, fear. Here's the answer. From the text, three answers. Condemnation, fear, hopelessness. Condemnation, fear, hopelessness. Those are the reasons that I don't always experience the fullness and the satisfaction and the security that the resurrection of Jesus offers me. See, the cross was bloody. <coughs> And the tomb is for sure empty. I still struggle with believing that I am condemned. 
condemned, worthless, stupid, whatever words you might want to use for it. I'm a failure. Start with believing that. Not always super consciously, but definitely very subconsciously. When I give myself the time, when I give my soul the space to get away from the things that I use to medicate my soul with, and I actually get alone between me and God, I begin to realize this is where my soul is like a low kind of churning where it's been living at deep down inside. It's condemnation. You ain't good enough. You suck. You're never going to get this straight, and you will never succeed. Look how long you've been trying. You are a failure. How could you, how could you even think that you're ever going to make it? Look how many times you've biffed it. That's what's going on deep down inside that I may not pay attention to as much anymore. Oh, 44 years old. I have 44 years of learning how to cope with that feeling, right? Anybody understand what I'm talking about here? Not just me? It's something deeper than just looking in the mirror and going, gosh, I'm not that attractive either, right? Like there's this, there's the, there's this skin deep beauty of the, of the kind of feeling like I don't measure up or I wish I was prettier or more handsome or however that may go. But it's deeper than that too. It's just soul deep, right? It's called condemnation. It's shackles. It's a prison. The crazy thing is the door is open. It's been open ever since the moment that Jesus said it is finished. Truth be told, it's been open since before my name got written in a book before the foundations of the world were laid. But the moment that I came to trust in Jesus now, some 22 years ago, it was the moment that I began to recognize there, those shackles have been broken and that doorway is open. I need to live in that prison. That crazy thing about condemnation is this. Now the cross was bloody. The tomb is empty. When I struggle with believing that I'm condemned, I, I think that I'm condemned, right? I think I'm a failure. Once that doorway of condemnation gets opened inside my soul, what do you think comes streaming through that door? Fear. Hopelessness. Those are the two companions of condemnation. It's fear and hopelessness. Condemnation is like a battering ram kicks in the doorway of your heart and the rest of the cops that run in behind him fear hopelessness condemnation is designed to leave you in that place so that you never see that you're living under the power of condemnation fear and hopelessness are the distractions for what condemnation is doing to your soul deep down inside that's my best thinking on this topic, 22 years of living in this passage. And it's rocked my world over the years. Well, here's the worst part, too, for me. I could look at you today as a friend, and I could say, there is therefore now no condemnation for what you've done. You could have confessed all your deepest, darkest sins to me. And you know what could happen tomorrow? I could totally use that sin over your head without knowing that I'm doing it. And I need to pay the price for that later. I love listening to Romans 8 on a record, and I, and I can't remember the name. Um, I promise we'll try to find it and post it to our public page, but um, there is a church that uh, put Romans 8 to song and spoken word. And um, there is a preaching bit, and some of you have heard me say this too. The great thing about this phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation, is that the now is now, and the no is no. There's no condemnation, not just less. There's now no condemnation, not five years in the future. Might need to apologize to some people. I think that's the exact literal words that this guy used. Might need to apologize to some people because you ain't going to live this out straight. But you give me a few moments, I, I will definitely fail you over and over and over again. I want perfection. I ain't going to get it. You know why? Because I ain't heaven yet. But in a really literal sense, you and I have already got it. We've already got that perfection over us in front of the eyes of our Father in heaven. He's the only one that matters. 
I need to get back on track here so I get us out of here. Three things you and I need to preach to ourselves from the text in terms of this condemnation, fear, hopelessness. Number one, say this with me. I am no longer condemned. Let's do it one more time. I am no longer condemned. One more time for good measure. I am no longer condemned. Verse one. It's my favorite verse, for sure. Out of all of this, I say that about every verse in chapter eight. It's my favorite verse. Someday, to get back to tattoos, I will just have the entire chapter eight tattooed down an arm or a leg or a foot or something. I love it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2,000 years ago, it's a long time ago, 2,000 years ago, Jesus hung on that cross and he bore the condemnation and he bore the wrath and he bore the punishment that you and I deserved on that bloody cross on a hill called Golgotha, a place called the place of death so that you and I could have true life without condemnation. So that you and I can walk free now. So that every moment now, every moment throughout our life that is now, that becomes right now, we can say I'm free from those shackles. I'm free from that prison door. Right now I am no longer condemned and the empty tomb is the seal of assurance of that truth. Without the empty tomb I have no assurance of this truth. Right now I am no longer condemned because the empty tomb assures that truth. Second thing you and I need to preach to ourselves is this. I am a child of God. Say it with me. I am a child of God. One more time for good measure. I am a child of God. One last time for great measure. I am a child of God. Verses 14 through 15 says this. All. Not some. All. Not those who have a real high super spiritual life, all. Not just those that showed up at the Easter outreach yesterday and helped out, all. Not just those who are on the stage, all. Not just those who put things in the church throughout the week, all. Not those who just show up to good Bible studies, all. Not those who, just those who just read their entire Bible, all. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's no hierarchy system. There's one king and one bride. King Jesus and we are his bride. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And there's a beautiful song on that album that I just told you about called Sons and Daughters, I think. And it's beautiful. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I I am absolutely convinced that fear is this insidious little demonic creature from the pit of hell that absolutely loves to put shackles on the hands and the feet of God's children. But those chains are broken. Those chains were broken, and that, that doorway to that tomb, that doorway to that prison was open that day when Jesus left the tomb empty. What did he do on that day? Today, this morning, he sealed his defeat over Satan, sin, and death. You and I have no more reason to fear because we belong to God. We belong to the king. When something threatens you, you have no reason to fear. Why? Because you belong to the king. If you get taken off this earth right now or tomorrow because of some happenstance, whether that be somebody murders you or you die of a heart attack, you know where you're headed because you're a child of the king. Heaven is what you're waiting for. That's your inheritance. I wish I had more time to speak on inheritance because Romans 8 speaks to so much of that of being heirs with Christ. It's so good, but for the sake of time, we'll move on. Fear is insidious. But I am a child of God now, right? I need to preach that to myself, and so do you. I'm a child of God now. I have nothing to fear because my greatest enemies, Satan, sin, death, they were defeated. They're defeated by the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. Third thing we need to preach to ourselves, and this one's good. I have six hope-filled bullets. Let's see if y'all can say that. I have six hope-filled bullets. Let's try it again. I have six hope-filled bullets. All right, one more time, a little staccato. I have six hope-filled bullets. That's pretty good. We could all be rappers. Let's open up a rap company next. Let's not. That was a stupid joke. Let's move on. (coughs) Verses 28 through 30. 
This is a beautiful spot of the text. You can preach five weeks of sermon on this portion of the text, and I'm going to be not going to do that. We're going to be done here shortly. Verses 20 through 30 says, we know that for those who, who love God, all things work together for good. Oh, we love that. We put that on t-shirts, coffee cups, all sorts of Christian paraphernalia, right? It's good stuff. I'm pretty sure I probably have a t-shirt and a coffee mug somewhere or a hat or a sock with this written on it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Let's read the rest of it, right? For those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined. He also called on a telephone after he gave you a brand new heart so your heart could hear what he was saying over that telephone. You hear me? It's one of the best illustrations I've ever come up with, I think. There's no pride in that. I think that's beautiful. He gives you a brand new heart and he calls you up and says, you belong to me. You're justified, you're perfect. You ain't guilty no more. Previous to that, your heart was dead and you couldn't hear those words. He called you. And those whom he called, you and I, he justifies, not guilty. And those whom he justifies, he glorified, the text says, meaning you look forward to heaven just like I. So when everything looks hopeless on this earth, we have six hope-filled bullets in these verses. Count them with me. Foreknown, predestined, conformed, called, justified, and glorified. I'm going to say it one more time. Foreknown, predestined, conformed, called, justified, and glorified. Here's the beauty of these words. It's a six-week series, I'm telling you. But the beauty of these words, this is what those words mean. If you've trusted in Jesus, you have this very same confession. God has known me since before he laid the foundations of the earth. That's what it means to be foreknown. God made a plan. This is what it means to be predestined, pre-planned. He made a plan before the beginning of time to ransom you and I and to call us his own. And he wants to conform us. Therefore, he's shaping you and I now into the image of his son. You may not see it, and I may not see it a whole lot either. This is why we need each other. I need Patrick to look at me and say, I see Jesus in you. I need Donnie to say, I, I see Jesus in you, even though you don't see it right now. You need me to say the same thing to you. This is why the community of the church is so important, right? You need to be able to see that God is actively shaping us into the image of his son. God then does what? Gives us a brand new heart. Gives us that brand new heart. Calls us to himself. And the words that he uses on the telephone call when he calls you and I is this. Not guilty. Just want to let you know that. Calling you up today to let you know, not guilty. I have justified you. I've transferred your guilt onto Jesus, and I've taken Jesus' perfection, and I've given it to you. And the last thing God does is he promises a future, a future in heaven where it is perfect. There's no more sin. There's no more tears. There's no more pain. And what you and I get to experience in the perfection of heaven once and for all is the presence of Jesus. There's no imitation that can ever compare with what we have to look forward to, foreknown, predestined, conformed, called, justified, glorified. Those six hope-filled words were made possible. How? A bloody cross and an empty tomb. That's why Easter is so vitally important to our faith. It's not just a mere yearly tradition. It's something we celebrate every Sunday together when we gather. But it's something really big that we celebrate at least once a year too. In conclusion, when we celebrate Easter, we celebrate the work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. It's the cross and the empty tomb that makes you and I fully alive, totally secure. You see, the things that hinder us from living fully alive, totally secure, things like condemnation and fear, hopelessness, if you've trusted in the crucified, risen, returning Christ, then you can live fully alive and you can live totally secure with six hope-filled words in your heart. As a child of living God, for whom there is therefore now no condemnation. See, because you are in the resurrected King Jesus, you're now alive and secure. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of this text. Thank you for the truth of your word. 
the promise of the gospel. That you came and you lived and you died and you left the tomb empty and you promised to return. This big promise in this text is that there is therefore now no condemnation. That we belong to you as your children. That you are our Father and our King, our Savior, our Redeemer. That your perfection has been given to us and that you have taken our filthiness. Lord, come and help us now as we close in song, as we close in communion, as we remember the shed blood of Jesus and the broken body of Jesus at that cross. Give us also a sense of the reassurance that we have. I thought Jesus just came back. I don't even know what else to say other than that. Amen. God is good. Amen. Try some uh, quick little quips. Quick little religious quips. God is good. Amen. All the time. God is, yep. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. There, I'm supposed to say the first part, you say the second part. God is good all the time. Yeah, I probably got it backwards, don't I? Hey, I love you guys. One of the things that we talk about quite a bit here is we are not a spit-shine, clean church. We don't have it all together. And we mess up our liturgies. We mess up our sermons. I mean, look at the dude standing here preaching. Pretty messed up. I'm convinced that's what keeps a lot of people away, which is terrible. <laughs> You know, the beauty of being broken and imperfect and not having everything kind of put together really well in what we do when we gather is it reminds us of our need for Jesus, you know? And it reminds us that uh, we do have that heaven to look forward to. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.